Welcome everyone, and uh, we're excited that you're here today, whichever campus you may be worshiping at. We're really, really, really honored that you're with us today. The gospel made simple. You know, as a church, we obviously talk a lot about how one becomes a follower of Jesus. But let me ask you, if someone were to just stop you on the street or approach you maybe at your workplace out in the marketplace somewhere or in a local restaurant and ask you that question, how confident are you that you could respond and share with them how one becomes a follower of Jesus Christ? And what's involved in that? How would you respond to that question? Well, C.S. Lewis once said, we don't need to be told new ideas so much as we just need to be reminded of old truths. And my hope is that for many, many people today, this will just be a good reminder of the wonderful truth of the gospel. But I believe that it will be for a lot of people the first time that God helped them to really understand what it means to become a follower of Jesus and how that happens and what is involved in that process. So I invite you to go on this journey with us today wherever you may be on your own spiritual journey. I heard about a man who went to a, a local church and he responded at the invitation time to go and pray. And when he knelt down to pray, some prayer counselor said, pray through, brother, pray through. He didn't know what that meant, but he started praying. And then soon another person came along and put a card in his face and said, we'd love for you to sign this card and fill it out. And then another prayer leader came by and said, look for the light, brother. Look for the light. When I was saved, I saw a bright light. And then another one came along and said, hold on, brother, hold on. A couple of moments later, one said, let go, brother, let go. And he said, wow, between praying through and signing a card and looking for a light and holding on and letting go, I nearly went to hell, all right? We need to know what's involved when a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Sometime back, Debbie and I were driving somewhere to another state, and uh, she asked a question. She said, how would you put the gospel in the simplest terms possible? And at first, I, I, I was like, well, it, it can't really be made very simple, I don't think, because there's a lot of rich theology behind it, and that's true. But she kept kind of pressing and asking questions and drawing it out of me, and it eventually became a wonderful, fun exercise, and we boiled it down to 16 words. And that's what I want to share with you today, 16 words that are enveloped in four statements that if you understand the richness behind these simple statements, let me tell you, you understand God's amazing good news. So let's jump in. The first declaration is simply this, I need help. I need help. Now you might be shocked at how hard that is for some people to admit but in order to understand the good news of the gospel, we first of all have to understand this piece of bad news, that is that we all need help. Now let me illustrate it with this metaphor or analogy. Let's suppose 
that we all jump in a bunch of buses and drive to the West Coast today. I think that'd be a fun trip, actually. We'd have a good time going across this great nation. But we all get there to the West Coast. There we are, right on the beach, looking out over the vast Pacific Ocean. And we get started on our journey to swim to Hawaii. Well, the truth of the matter is, some of us can hardly swim at all. Others of us are mediocre swimmers. We can save ourselves if we were to fall out of a boat, but we're not that good. Others are kind of okay swimmers, but some people in our group have actually swam competitively. I mean, they've had a ton of training in this, and, and they could honestly swim and swim and swim for miles out into the Pacific Ocean. But here's what I want you to understand. Nobody's going to make it to Hawaii. I hope we could all agree that left on our own strength, without any additional help, without anything else, nobody's going to make it. Nobody's even going to get close. We all need help. Now, that's so easy to understand with a simple illustration of swimming to Hawaii. Why is it so hard to understand when it comes to spiritual things? But it is. Some people just have a really hard time admitting, I need help. They'll say things like this. After all, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than most people I know. You know, I've never murdered anybody, I'll tell you that. I'm better than those folks I work with. And when they're saying things like that, they're playing the comparison game. They're comparing themselves, perhaps in their mind, to Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden or some sociopathic moral monster they've read about who killed a bunch of people. Or maybe they even conjure up in their mind the politician that they hate the most and they think, I'm better than that person. And so they're comparing themselves. The problem is, God's not going to judge us based on some moral monster, some evil person. We're judged according to his law. And it's when we look at the law that we become conscious of how sinful we really are. Consider these verses that the Apostle Paul taught in what we call Romans chapter 3. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Catch this next phrase. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Paraphrase, you can never be good enough morally. You can never keep enough rules. That's what that's saying, to be acceptable to God, his standard is so high. Rather, it says, through the law, we become conscious of sin. One paraphrase puts that, God gave us the straight edge of the law so we could see how crooked we really are. You may think, oh, I'm a good person, but I'm gonna prove to you right now that you're not as good as you may think, all right? Let's do a little test. I want us to walk through the 10 commandments and I want you to score yourself. This is an honor system, okay? And remember, as we do this exercise, that James chapter 2, verse 10, says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point 
is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, don't misunderstand that verse. That verse is not saying that every sin is equally bad. That would be a ridiculous statement. Some sins have far more ramifications than others. Some do far more damage than others. All sins are not equally bad. Catch this. But any sin, no matter how bad, is enough to condemn a person to hell. Let's suppose you were hanging over a cliff, a 5,000-foot cliff, with nothing between you and the ground. You're hanging there by a 10-link chain. Question, how many links have to break for you to fall? Just one. Certainly no one be, would be foolish enough to, as they were falling, go, well, only one link broke. You're gone. You're done for. That's what that verse is saying. But we're going to see today who's really righteous. I'm going to list all the Ten Commandments, and again, you keep up with your own score, and then we'll test it at the end. Here we go. Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. All right? If you've always put God first in everything in your life, you count that as one you've never broken. Your attitude, God was always first in that. All of your actions, he's been number one. Count that as a commandment you've never broken. Number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. If you've never carved an idol out of wood or stone or paper mache, for that matter, and fallen down and worshipped that idol, you count that as one you've never broken. Aren't you glad that one's in there? We've all got one. Okay. Now, I know it's bigger than that. There's a whole lot of other things that are idols. I get it. I get it. We're, not, we're trying to make this easy. If you've never carved an idol and worshipped it, count it as one you've never broken. Number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. If you've never cursed, if you've never used God's name in profanity, if you've never used the popular phrase, oh God, as an expletive, if you've never sang a hymn and weren't really thinking about the words you were singing, if you've never used God's name in a way that would drain it of its grandeur in meaning, then you count that as one you've never broken. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Saturday is obviously the original Sabbath but millions of Christians uh, consider Sunday to be the Lord's day or kind of their Sabbath. But the point is this. Do you always observe the Sabbath and hallow it as holy? Do you have at least one day in a week where you set it aside and it's different from all other days? It's God's day. And you observe it and you worship God and you allow God to totally recreate you and you never skip out on that you never use it for your own selfish frivolous pursuits if you've always kept the sabbath perfectly you count that as one you've never broken number five honor your father and your mother if when you were a child you never disobeyed your parents you never sassed your parents you never rolled your eyes at your mom or dad disrespecting them, and if as they grew older, you never teased about how childish and foolish they were at times, you count that as one you've never broken. Thou shalt not kill if you've never murdered anyone. Now, I know the Bible says that if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer, but we're trying to make this easy, okay? 
We're not going to count it that way. If you've never literally murdered someone, you count that as one you've never broken. Thou shalt not commit adultery. If, as a single person, before you were married, you were never promiscuous, and as a single person now, you never, ever break one of God's rules or guidelines sexually, and after you got married, if you were always faithful to your mate. Now, I know the New Testament says that if you lust after a person in your heart, you've committed adultery, but we're not going to count it that way, okay? We're trying to make this easy. If you've never committed adultery, you count that as one you've never broken. Thou shalt not steal. If you've never taken anything that didn't belong to you, not a dime out of your mother's purse, not a towel out of a hotel, not a strawberry off of a salad bar that you did not pay for, You've always given a full day's honorable day of work, never slacking, because if you slack and don't use that day, well, you're robbing your employer, you're stealing from your employer. If you've never done that, you count that as one you've never broken. Thou shalt not bear false witness. If you've never told a lie your whole life, you've never even embellished a story or exaggerated, you've never even told a white lie. You count that as one you've never broken. Thou shalt not covet. If you have never wished you had something that belonged to someone else or someone that belonged to someone else, you've never envied another person for what they had or who they were, you count that as one you've never broken. Okay, are you ready? Let's score ourselves, okay? I want to see some hands here. How many of you are absolutely perfect in every way? You have kept all Ten Commandments perfectly your entire life. Can I see your hand, please? Okay, so Jesus is not here. All right, good. At least in body, okay. How many of you have kept nine commandments perfectly? Could I see your hand? Nine commandments you've kept perfectly. Eight. Okay. How many of you have perfectly in every way kept seven of these commandments am i missing some hands or something here six how many have kept six wow this is a wicked group i'm telling you now i'm gonna stop right there because i'm making some of you nervous but i figure i've kept three i've never carved a graven image and the other two are none of your business But we just prove the truth of this scripture. Romans 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, what happens? We become conscious of sin. I can go through life thinking, wow, I'm awesome, I'm wonderful, and yet I've got tens of thousands of sins on my account. And here I am thinking of myself as a pretty good guy. The straight edge of the law shows me how far short I've actually fallen. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I would say that's one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture. I need help. The second statement is this, I can't help myself. I can't help myself. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't save yourself. Let's go back to our Hawaii illustration for a moment. I can imagine someone saying, look, Pastor Rex, you don't understand. You see, I'm going to train. I'm going to lift weights. I'm going to work on my endurance as long as it takes, and I'll set records for swimming. I'm going to be the most finely trained athlete you've ever seen. I'll show you. I will do it. Well, that's impressive. It really is. Frankly, I admire someone who would go to that kind of sacrifice in order to be a good swimmer. But apparently you're forgetting one thing. You're not swimming across Lake George or the English Channel. You're not swimming to Catalina Island from the West Coast. You're swimming to Hawaii. And I don't care how much you train, how much you sacrifice, how much you discipline yourself, you're not even going to get close and similarly, in this life, people try to be good enough for heaven. They try to earn their way. You could call it good works or religion. And all religious systems except Christianity are some system of good works, climbing the ladder of good works until somehow I can become acceptable to God. Whether we're talking about the eightfold path of Buddha, the way of Confucius, the principles of Taoism, or obedience to Allah in the Islamic faith, or even closer to home. People who go to church and engage in various sacraments and religious exercises with the belief that I'm earning this. By engaging in this exercise, I'm earning brownie points with God when I go to church. They're all thinking, surely God will be impressed and let me into heaven. Don't you see the fallacy of that? What you think is good will never be good enough. Anyone who's foolish enough to think they can actually earn their way to heaven doesn't understand two things. They don't understand, first of all, the holiness and perfection of God, and that that's the standard he's holding you to. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Listen, heaven is a perfect place for perfect people. That cuts me out. I don't have a chance of ever getting to heaven. If it depends on my performance, I simply can never be that good. Can you? But the second thing a person who thinks they can earn their way to heaven doesn't understand is the sinfulness of sin. Think about the best day you've ever had morally. Everything was going right. You were at your highest point of virtue. You lived a day with utter selflessness and sacrifice for others. Remember that day? Scripture says that day is like filthy rags in the sight of God. You see, we don't understand how far short from God's standard we're really falling. But religion is all an attempt to earn my way to heaven, to be good enough to be acceptable to God. It's trying to help myself. 
But I finally have to come to the point of realizing, not only do I need help, but I cannot help myself. I can never be good enough to earn this. Now let's just push pause right there for a moment. Isn't this wonderful news so far? Aren't you feeling great? Yeah, aren't you just glad you came to church today? I mean, woo, not only am I in big trouble, but I can't do anything to get myself out of it. Woo, good news. But hang on. This is quite a dilemma to be in. And the reason we need to pause there and just let the dilemma sink in is because unless those two premises are accepted by a person, honestly, there's no way anyone can ever be saved. We've got to understand the mess we're truly in, that we are desperate, doomed, hopeless, apart from God's gracious intervention. Well, then comes the third statement. Jesus came to help. Back to our Hawaii illustration for a moment. Let's say that we're all there floundering in the water, literally about to die, and along comes a benevolent ship captain with an amazing offer. He says, look, I see you. I care. I see you in your hopelessness, and I want to help. I really don't want anyone to perish. My ship is called salvation. And for anyone who is willing humbly, humbly to admit I can't do this on my own and willing to graciously accept my offer and what I'm doing for them here can get on board the ship. Wow, what an offer. But that's just like the gospel. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus gave his life on that cross, friend, to pay the penalty that my sins and yours demanded. And when he spoke those final words, tetelestai, it is finished, he was declaring, hallelujah, that a way for desperate, doomed, broken, sinful people like Rex Keener, there's a way for them to actually be saved and not have to perish. And now the good news really starts feeling like good news. But there's one other statement. I need help. I can't help myself. Jesus came to help. And here's the final declaration. I must accept his help. Back to our Hawaii illustration one more time. As wonderful as that ship captain's offer is, guess what? It's worthless unless you accept it. Now, this may shock some of you, but think about it for a moment. Who do you think, as we're floundering there in the water, beginning to realize to different degrees we're doomed here, who do you believe would be the least eager to accept 
the ship captains offer. You're right, it would probably be the best swimmers. Because they know I'm better than most. Hey, I'm pretty good at this. Hey, I, I want people to recognize me and how good I am and our pride. The best swimmers would be the least eager to receive the captain's offer. And I find this to be true in life. Sometimes the best moral rule keepers have the most disdain for God's gospel of grace. You know why? Because they've worked hard at religion. Oh, my goodness. They've worked hard. They've had years in their minds of thinking, I'm racking up points here. I'm going to add to what Jesus did for me because it's not enough on its own. So I'm going to add to it. And I'm going to get the credit. I'm going to be able to look at God and say, I did this. How wonderful am I? I know it's ironic. I know it's even shocking to some. But it's honestly some of the best people morally who have the hardest time with God's gospel of grace. You come to God broken and desperate. Hear this. You come to God broken and desperate, or you don't come at all. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. God is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed. In spirit, we have to be willing to humbly receive Christ. John chapter 1 verse 12 reads, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, that says we need to receive him. Well, how in the world do you do that? If I need help, if I can't help myself, if Jesus came to help and his death on the cross made a way for me to be saved and my sins to be forgiven so I can actually go to heaven, how do I actually receive that? What does that look like? Well, the Bible uses a word over and over again. It's the word repent, okay? Metanoia. It's a compound word that at its root means a change of mind. It means that by God's grace and by his intervention in our lives, he enables us to actually change our mind, my attitude. I go from being cynical to being humble. I go from being proud and arrogant to now having a submissive spirit to God. A woman was buying a shirt in a department store and she noticed on the tag, shrink resistant. That's what it said. She said to the clerk, what does that mean, shrink resistant? And the clerk said, well, that means it'll shrink, but it doesn't want to, okay? It doesn't want to. <laughs> Sometimes Christians will slip and fall, trust me. But you know what? In our heart, more than anything else, we want to please God. That's the thing about a Christian. You want to you identify a real follower of Jesus? Oh, they're going to slip and fall. But let me tell you something. 
the most important thing in their life is to please their Lord. He is their treasure. He saved them and forgiven them and allowed them to be rescued from their desperate plight. And now they're eager and willing to do what he says. So what does he say to do? He says, repent. Also, the scriptures say we need to confess Christ. We need to confess him. Make a public profession of faith. Consider this passage from the Apostle Paul, Romans 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Boy, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. Justified means that you're, you're actually declared just as if you had never sinned. Remember all those sins that we'd racked up? I've got tens of thousands on my record. God looks at me through Christ and his atoning death and says, it's just as though, Rex Keener, you'd never sinned. I see you as clean and without guilt before me. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You say, what's about this public thing? Well, let me put it to you this way. Jesus died publicly for you. This wasn't done in a corner. It was done actually during a time of a Jewish festival, a feast time, where there were hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. He died publicly on the cross for you. And when you accept Jesus Christ, he wants you to be willing to identify with him. That doesn't mean you have to pray publicly. When I was saved, when I really crossed over and became a believer, I, I went forward publicly and I prayed a prayer at the front of the church. It, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do something like that. But you can't be ashamed of Christ. The scripture says in Matthew chapter 10, Whoever acknowledges me before men, this is Jesus, he says, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. You say you're a follower of Jesus, awesome. Are you proud of him? Or are you ashamed of him? Now, I don't want to make too much of this. You never want to make a theology out of your personal experience. But let me just tell you, for me, that was the watershed issue for me as a young man. Until I was willing to publicly identify with Christ. I'm just telling you my experience. It may not be yours. But I was not really serious about following him. That was the issue for me. I was ashamed of declaring myself a Christian. And it may be that that's the issue for some of you. Charlie Moore got transferred in his job to a strange city. And immediately he joined the softball team, the company team, even though he was a lousy, and I mean a really lousy softball player. He was kind of pathetic, to be honest. But he joined the team because he thought it would be a good way to get to know some people. And so at the first game, he heard someone in the stands yelling, come on, Mr. Moore. You can do it, Mr. Moore. Add a boy, Mr. Moore. 
the person just kept yelling this encouragement out to him like that. And after the game, as he and his wife and his young son were driving home, he said, wow, I didn't know anybody knew me here, but someone in the stands kept calling out to me, come on, Mr. Moore. And his son said, that was me, Dad. And he said, why didn't you call me Dad? He said, I didn't want anybody to know I was related to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If we have a relationship with Christ, we ought to be proud of it. I love it when a little kid points to their mom or dad and goes, that's my mom. That's my dad. When a dad at a dance recital whispers, that's my daughter. I went recently to a basketball game, a high school playoff game at Glens Falls Civic Center. I was with a couple of friends and I sat down to a woman I didn't know, never seen in my life. And I sat there, I said hi to her, smiled at her and started watching the game. And it wasn't even two minutes wasn't even two minutes until she said, number 21 out there is my son. And she was glowing with pride because he was doing great. I said, wow, he's really playing a great game, isn't he? She was proud of her son. We ought to be able to say, hey, Jesus is my Savior and Lord. He's my treasure. And one of the ways we declare that, a biblical way to declare that, is in believer's baptism. Where we go into the waters of baptism and we're making a public declaration when we do that. I belong to Jesus. I treasure him above all. Can you say that today? Or has so far this just kind of been a thing in your head? You could have ticked off all the right boxes but maybe like me as a young man, the watershed moment for you is when you're willing to go public with your faith. I sense that may be true for a number of people. So let me sum this up today. The goal of this message is simply to present the gospel in the simplest way possible. That's what Debbie challenged me to do in that conversation. And as we talked, we kind of began to smile because we thought, wow, 16 words. I need help. Can't help myself. Jesus came to help. I must accept his help. And if you understand the enormously rich theology and reality behind those 16 words, wow. What a gospel. What good news. So let me close by asking you this. What are you trusting in today? Are you trusting in your money? Are you trusting in your fame? Are you trusting in your reputation? Are you trusting in your connections and your amazing network and all the important people you know? Can I really be blunt with you? I hope so. I hope you won't be offended when I share what the scripture says about that. Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts in himself is a fool. Because one of these days you're gonna die. It doesn't matter how much money you've made or how great your connections are or how intelligent you are. The only thing that's gonna matter is 
What did you do with Jesus and his offer of salvation? And that's what I urge you to do today. I urge you to open your heart and life to him. So here's how we're going to do it as we close. I'm just going to pray a prayer, and I invite you to pray it right where you are along with me. And we're just going to pray it along the lines of these four statements. But if that's where God has brought you to today, you pray that prayer with me. Just say it silently right in your heart where you are. God will meet you in this amazing moment. And he will transform your life. It'll be the first step of a whole new journey of life with Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? Just bow your heads all over the room at all of our locations. Would you just bow your heads, please? And if God has brought you to this moment, and only he can do that, I can't do that, you can't make yourself ready, but if he's shown you today, if he's shown you by his spirit, this is for you, would you pray this prayer right where you are along with me? Oh God, I realize I need help. I'm a sinner. And I realize I can't help myself. I can never do enough good works to save myself. Thank you for coming to help. Thank you for dying on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. I accept your help. Right now, I repent of my sin and invite you to save me, to change me from the inside out. Father, I pray for everyone that you've brought to that point today, and I thank you for the life that you're giving them, and I thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the amazing new life in Christ. We're so grateful. Because apart from you, we cannot save ourselves. You alone are the Savior. And we treasure you today above all. In Jesus' name, amen.